Christmas in Hong Kong is a unique experience for me. I am usually unashamedly an American, sometimes ashamedly, and I grew up in the northern part of America. So for my first 25 Christmases, there were two things that were common. One, it was incredibly cold. We, I, both places I lived most of my childhood life were right on lakes. And one was on a great lake. And when, when you live near a giant lake, you get this thing called wind chill. Because the wind comes off the lake and it just, it, it freezes you so much that it burns. And the second thing you get when you live near a, a lake is around Christmas time, you can be guaranteed you will get snow. But not just the little bit of white dusting that we see in the pictures. Where I grew up, we averaged hundreds of inches of snow per winter. That would have been as if that's the ground, the snow could be up to here. And you would have to go out. And I remember as I got to my teenage years, my dad was very thrilled because as a pastor of a small town church, not only was he the preacher, he was also the janitor and the everything else. And as I got older, I could help shovel all the sidewalks for him. But I loved, loved, loved the picture of snow and winter and Christmas, of seeing everybody that had their real Christmas tree that they didn't go by. They went out back and cut it down. You know, they didn't have to manufacture it. It was all there. That was my normal Christmas experience. And I very much liked those traditions. Now, because I'd grown up where, not where my family was, we also had one tradition that I would complain about every year. We would open up or wake up Christmas morning, we would open our gifts, and then we would get in the car and drive between six and eight hours to go see the rest of our family. And I always thought, why can't Christmas be sacred? I tried to make it sound really holy, that that was why I cared. What I really wanted was to play with my toys that I'd gotten for Christmas. But instead, I had to be in the car for all these hours. But what I also remember is that Christmas time brought together my family. Some of you remember that this time last year I was getting ready to go see my dying grandmother who passed away shortly thereafter. And it was always at my grandmother's house. Or when I was little, my grandfather on my mom's side would take me out and let me drive the tractor around his farm in the snow. And by let me drive, I mean sit there and turn a wheel. But it was those memories of coming together of a special time. And so when we moved to Hong Kong, we didn't quite know what to expect. Obviously, we, uh, we weren't going to fly back to America every Christmas. And we got here and we had at this point about a five or six month old baby with us. I can't remember how old she was. And we decided we would go to the mall around Christmas time. And the only mall we knew of and were comfortably, comfortable getting to was Harbor City. You know where Harbor City is? It's the one in Chim Sha Choi at the time it boasted it was the biggest mall in Hong Kong. And so we had this expectations because we'd seen Christmas decorations around Wampo and we thought this is going to be great. It's going to feel like Christmas to us. And we walked in and I don't know if you've been in Harbor City, but it is this mall with an endlessly long hallway that is terrifying to a guy that doesn't like crowds. And we walked in and it was nothing but purple. 
their decorations for Christmas were all purple. Purple Christmas trees, purple Christmas ornaments, purple Christmas everything. And I looked at Melissa and I said, where are we? And she said, I don't know, but I think we should leave. And so we did. And for that brief moment, we looked at each other and we said, this doesn't feel like Christmas. And we went home and to be honest with you, we didn't know many of you very well and many of you weren't even a part of our church at that time. So we couldn't have known you very well. And we kind of wallowed in self-pity that first Christmas, I confess. Because we just, it just didn't feel like what we were used to. Our expectations were here for me in six feet of snow going sledding and snowboarding and all those things. For us as a family, it was being with our family. And we were so excited to celebrate with Isabella and all of you. But it was different. Now I move forward eight years, almost nine years now. And I look out and it feels exactly like Christmas to me. I went to IFC and they don't even have a Christmas tree this year. They just put a regular tree in. I don't understand that. That still does not feel like Christmas to me. But interestingly... What I love was I saw, sorry, Crystal, I'm going to use your name, walk in just a minute ago. A former youth group student that's now in university that comes back, part of my family. I see many of you Brunels back and others come back. And I've seen others that come in that are in the same boat I am. This is our home. This is our family. And we will worship together wherever God has brought us. And that is much more Christmas and the message of Christmas than a purple Christmas tree or not even a Christmas tree. Now, I do confess, as we would like to have many of you visit over the holiday, we do have a real Christmas tree that we did buy uh, because we wanted to feel like that. But you see, when we get around this time of year each year, we all have expectations of Christmas. Some of them are traditions that we've had from childhood. Some of them are just things that we said, well, my, fa- fa- my family did it this way and we're not going to do it that way. And you say, no, I would never do that. Yes, we do that. We do things just to spite those before us. But in all the significance, if I were to ask you, my church family, what is the meaning of Christmas? I have no doubt that you would very comfortably tell me, well, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus. You would get the answer right. And I would say, good job. But I don't know that we truly ponder the depth and the meaning of what Tina May just read. That Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is here. That he came. Remember, you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, and we were promised Emmanuel. God with us. Gabriel made that promise again to Mary and Joseph. You, unto you will be born Emmanuel, God with us. When we talk about that and when we look at the lit candle that last night Sheila and CH were able to lead a dear old man to Jesus Christ. He's on his deathbed, but he prayed to receive the Lord last night. Thank you. Good, we should be excited. I know we're cold, it's chilly in here. So that should excite us because that we got the privilege of introducing someone to the very person of Jesus Christ. Well, who is that man? Today I'd like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. 
We're going to do something that I've, I've never really done as your pastor. We're going to basically have a sermon based on two verses, really one verse, and just a little bit from another. But it is, in my opinion, one of the single most important verses in the Bible when it comes to understanding Christmas and who we are as part of this story. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 14 of John chapter 1. You can follow along with me. It's not on the screens yet, but it will be in a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 goes on to say, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, many of you, if you've grown up in a church setting, probably know John 1, 1 quite well. Or you can try it. It gets a little tongue twisty at times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. But we often don't get all the way down to verse 14 and truly consider... And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And today, I want us to consider just the depth of those two verses. And what does that mean at this Christmas season in every day of our lives? You see, at Alliance International Church, we say we are a church that seeks to glorify God by loving Christ, loving one another, and reaching the world. Okay, and for a pause, for a side note, if you're really cold, just get closer to the person next to you. If we're truly the church, we love one another, so just get in there and warm each other up, okay? But I want us to consider today, what was John teaching us? Because John, unashamedly, the beloved disciple, says, it is my duty to proclaim Jesus is the light of the world. That was his goal in both his, his, his apostle, his gospel here, and later on in his letters. And so, in the beginning was the Word. Now, when we think of Word, we think of things that we can either write or read, correct? That's our first thought. But here, we're given this picture of, in Greek, the the logos, the logos, the living Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, I'm going to need you to trust me. I've got the verses, but we're going to need the points. There we go. So we're back here. Jesus is God. You see, in here we see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why is it important for us to understand that Jesus was the Word, was God? Well, first off, it tells us that Jesus himself is fully God. From the beginning of time and before time began, Jesus is God. There was never a time when Jesus is not God. There are some that say when he came to earth, he emptied himself of his godness, and they misunderstand that verse in Philippians. Jesus did not cease to become God when he came to earth. He just took on human flesh, and we'll get there in a minute. But Jesus is God. And this is hugely important for us because you and I, in spite of how we live our lives, are not God. 
we tend to make our lives about us. We tend to think largely first about ourselves and then about others and hopefully about Christ somewhere. But often if we look at how we've ordered our lives, there is a very true reality that in some ways we order our lives around what makes us happy, comfortable, and secure. Correct? We have elevated ourselves to a godlike level because we do think that in some ways the world is aimed to please us. I have three children and I've discovered that now that the youngest is three years old, that three years old is this year in life where the world stops for them. And there is only one thing that is important and that is their happiness. I've had it with three children and all three are exactly the same. Everything is about them. If they aren't happy, ain't nobody happy. And some of us do that in our lives. We tend to think that circumstances that go wrong in our lives mean therefore that we're not happy and that we will let those circumstances dictate how we walk through this life. But if we go back and look at this very simple reality that Jesus is God, we understand something magical. And I want to read to you how James Boyce says it. You know he's one of my favorite authors. He says that this means that everything that is, can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. And that is true. Everything we know about God the Father is true of God the Son and God the Spirit. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom, all the glory... All the love, all the power, all the holiness, and all the grace, justice, and truth of God the Father. You see, in Christ, God the Father is known because He is God. To say that Jesus Christ is God is to say that we know the truth about God. We can know Because remember, when we look at this word logos, when we look at in the beginning was the word, we know that it's living and active. Jesus is alive and he came to earth for us. We know what he's like. We know who Jesus is. We've got thousands of pages telling us about Jesus Christ, about who he is, what he's done, and how important he is. We know the truth about God. The counterpart to this statement is apart from Christ, you and I cannot know God. We need Jesus Christ. And he is fully God. How do I know that? Well, how do I want to, how do I get to the point where I could say, I want to know what God is like? Well, simple. Study the life of Christ. Look very careful. There's this fancy word in Christianese called the incarnation, where God became man, okay? God with us, Emmanuel. And so if we want to know about God, look to Jesus Christ. If we want to see him, study God's word. See how he has lived. See how when he became man and made his dwelling among us, this is how he chose to live his life. We don't, it's, it's not a secret. That is why he came, to teach us, to guide us, and to save us. He had to be God to do those things. But not only is he fully God, 
But the interesting thing is when you get to verse 14, we realize that God became man. Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh. Now, John could have said the word became human. He could have said the word became a man, but he chose the word flesh. Why did he choose the word flesh? Well, because he's divine. And when you look at the word flesh, it's a big, intentionally deliberate word that stands for all humanity, or stands for all of a person, every bit of a person, heart, soul, and mind. Jesus became flesh. He took on the form of a human. I don't think we've stopped sometimes and grasped that, that God, fully God, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. He knows all, he is all-powerful, and he is everywhere. And that very God took on flesh and became man. Now, he lived in the Middle East, so he would have looked like a normal Middle Eastern guy from a poor family. Isn't that amazing? Do we stop and really think about that at Christmas time? That God became man? Well, what does it mean that he took on flesh? Like I said, it means that all of his being was just like us. Now, he didn't cease to be God. Don't, don't misunderstand. But he had all of our human traits save one. He wasn't a sinner. That's why it's so important to understand he is God. Because Jesus is different from you and I in one miraculously important way. He knew no sin. But he walked among us. One of the first and most important things we have to understand about the fact that Jesus is a man is that a man can die. Right? Now, save Christ returning before our death, you and I at some point will die. And for those that have believed on Jesus Christ, we will enter into an eternal enjoyment of worship together with our King. But God became man so that the Son of God might die in our place. And that was incredibly significant. We can't forget that the reason Jesus came to this earth was to give his life as a ransom for many. Something that you and I honestly probably wouldn't do. But God in his rich and powerful and mighty love and grace gave himself up for us. Him that knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our sin. That is what Christmas is about. The Messiah, the Savior, was coming to save us from ourselves, to save us from the reality that we are a broken people, that we have sinned and fallen short of what God expects, and that the reality is we can't fix it on our own. A sacrifice, a price has to be paid for the the bloodletting that is sin. And God sent his son who knew no sin to come into this world as a man. So not only do we know that Jesus could die as very much a human being, but we also know that he lived as we live. We're told in Hebrews that 
Jesus understands, that he sympathizes with us. If you're a teenager, Jesus knows what it's like to be a teenager. If you're an adult, Jesus knows what it's like to do, deal with life growing up. If you're a kid, Jesus was a kid and he grew. There is no point when we can say Jesus just wouldn't understand because he walked this earth as one of us. He was tempted. He was persecuted. In fact, in all reality, we couldn't understand some of the things he faced. Do you realize that most of the times he walked anywhere, there was a crowd ready to try to criticize, harm, and hurt him? I don't know about you, but that would make me want to stay away from places like the temple and the the synagogues, wouldn't you? If I know I'm going to go into a room where people aren't going to want to be around me and they're going to criticize everything I do and they're going to try quietly to kill me, I would think I would avoid that. But instead, Jesus walked right in there and taught. Jesus spent time with those in need. He didn't just go to the righteous, the perceived righteous people. He went to the sick. He went to those that needed hope. And he offered himself. He said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I understand where you are. And I am stepping down into your life and saying, I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us. God became man And the next part of that verse is amazing to me. It says that Jesus lived among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to Exodus. And let's think very carefully about how the people of Israel were guided throughout their wilderness wanderings. And if you've heard this story, for 40 years they walked around with no place to go. So it's kind of like a man driving somewhere he doesn't know where he's going. Similar, but do that for 40 years. And in that time, God commanded his people to make him a tent so that he could make his dwelling among the people, so that his glory could rest among the people. You know what they called it? A tabernacle, okay? God's dwelling was among his people in a very amazing way. And when he led them, when it was time to go, what would happen? A pillar of fire by night would move and a cloud by day would move and they would follow. They would pick up the tent and they would go wherever that was. Amazingly, John here tells us using the same language that they would use from Exodus that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, tabernacled among us, his glory with you and me. Now, if you've been around me, you know that I like the outdoors and I love to camp. So I brought an illustration with me. If you can see over here in the corner, it was supposed to be on the stage. Then I realized that tent is too big. So it's in the corner. When we go camping, that is Isaiah and I's tent. Okay. He and I sleep in that one and the girls get the other one. And that's with us. And that's our home. When we go out to uh, Lantau Island or when we go to Saiwan later on and places like that. But it's our dwelling place. It's where we live. This verse goes back 
to the Old Testament reference that the Jews and Gentiles alike, anyone that had heard the story of Israel, would have understood that instead of God's glory being in a tent where it would show up and be kind of unapproachable in a sense that only certain people could talk and communicate and interact with God, think Moses, now God again steps down to earth I'm going to keep coming back to that theme and makes his dwelling among us. He camps out with us. Even though our bodies are temporary, even though this life is not all there is, God became man and came to live with us. He pitched his tent and he said, I'm here. I am to be glorified. You've got me. Will you worship me? Will you believe in me? Because I am with you. I'll tell you a joke that helps remind us at this point. It was my sister's favorite joke because she's able to relate, as am I. And and she used to tell me this all the time. She said, did you know that God favors short people? He says, lo, I am with you always. (laughs) Now, we can laugh. But the reality is God is with us and we have no bigger picture of that than the fact that he emptied himself. He became a man. He took on human flesh. The very majestic God made himself nothing, taking on the form not just of a man but of a servant. Israel was expecting a king in the glorified sense that he was to be born in a temple and he wasn't. He was born in basically a cave. It would have been cold outside. Winters in Israel, especially Bethlehem in that area, are not warm places. It would have been windy. It would have been cold if it was, in fact, winter. And I'm not sure when Jesus was born. But it wasn't the best circumstances for our king to be born. But see, those are our expectations. As Paul tells us in Philippians, he took on the very nature of a servant. Pitch his tent among you and I. And then he did something else. He allowed us to see his glory in very tangible ways. We got the privilege of reading through and seeing the glory of God on display in the form of a simple carpenter. It's an extraordinary God. Remember the title of this series, Ordinary Men? Well, in every way, from appearance sake and from humanity's sake, Jesus was ordinary. He wasn't born into royalty. He was born into a royal line, but it was pretty iffy at that point. I mean, Joseph was a carpenter. That's a step above a janitor, but it wasn't awesome. And there was no great promises of wealth and and health and great benefit for him. But that... That was the form that Jesus took. The shape of a man would have apprenticed as a carpenter to walk among us. And you know what he did when he walked among us? He introduced people to a God that pursued them. To a God that loved the poor, the hurting, the sinner, the broken, the needy, the crippled, the blind, the lame. He didn't hang out a whole lot with the rich, the comfortable, and the righteous. 
because, well, they seemed to think they were good enough gods for themselves. But when God with us stepped down to earth and became man, he went to the needy and he said, I love you. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My glory is for you. And it's pointing, drawing us all back to the Father. We have seen his glory. Have you thought about that? That we get the privilege of knowing God becoming man. That tabernacle that moved around has been replaced with the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That it is his glory with us and it will be fulfilled and we will be completely redeemed when he returns, ushering in a new heaven and a new earth where we who have known the glory of God the Father through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will enjoy eternity like no other. That is the promise of Christmas. God became man to save us. His glory is inviting us to him. He is glorified by our satisfaction and enjoyment of him. He ch- we see throughout this Bible two things constant. One, we humans are stupid. We keep rejecting him. And two, he continues to pursue us. He allows us to live with the reality of our choices. He is a God that lets us choose. But it is not his will that any would perish. Now, he does let us live with the reality of that choice. If we choose to say, I'm not going to believe in Jesus Christ, God becoming man to save me. I don't need him. He lets you make that choice. But for those in Christ, we see the glory of God that changes everything. As Boyce said earlier, when we think about realizing who Jesus is, God becoming man. It means that we've seen him. And when we see him, it means that we can know how he lived. And it means that if we've seen how he lived and we've seen his glory displayed here on earth that makes the heavens sing, that why wouldn't we want to do exactly what he has done? Because he came full of grace and truth. Well, what does it mean that Jesus, who we got to see his glory, who is fully God and fully man, was also full of grace and truth? Well, another way to uh, to translate that idea of grace, especially as John uses, uses it, is this idea of the steadfast an everlasting love of God. We are currently fostering a puppy. This is round three of the the great dog experiment of 2013 for the Rose family. And there's one thing about puppies that are amazing is that when they realize they're loved, you can't get rid of them. They are everywhere. It doesn't matter how small those little legs are, they keep up with you. And when you leave... It is just devastating to them. They've got this pitiful little cry that says, I just want to be with you. Their love is steadfast. The minute you're home, there's a reason dogs are called man's best friend. 
Because you may not always have time for them, but they've always got time for their owner. Jesus Christ came full of grace, full of the grace of God that transcends all understanding, that says he is the very embodiment of God, of grace. That is he that is grace. How do I know that? Well, why did he come to this earth? To seek and save that which is lost. Well, what is lost? Us. The greatest act of grace of all time was God becoming man and making his dwelling among us so we could see his glory, experience his life, know that he died for us and see that he rose again victoriously once for all, that we might have life and have it to the full and the eternal. He is full of grace. Well, he's also full of truth. What does that mean? Some translate it this way. He is the true and complete revelation of God. Jesus Christ, the full and complete revelation of God. God becoming man, giving us access to his father. Saying, I love you so much that I came to this earth to give my life so that you could be saved and enjoy a relationship with me, my Father, and the Holy Spirit. Because this is all about relationship. Everything here, everything John says is relational. That's why I love the picture that theologians for years have called the perichoresis, the great dance of God in the Trinity. Because God interacts with the Father, or Jesus interacts with the Father, and he interacts with the Holy Spirit in this wonderful fellowship together. The closest interaction I have is, is that idea of the fellowship of the rings, how it brought all these different people together toward one purpose. Well, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are together one purpose, inviting us to enjoy Him in great and perfect fellowship. How amazing is that? That is the greatest gift of all time. That is what He's done. But there's another tradition that I see happen a lot at Christmas. If you've ever seen a movie about the holidays, there are usually a few elements present. If it's an American movie, there's snow. There's people wishing they could go to the beach, but living in snow or something like that. And there is always, always, always fighting among families, right? In every Christmas movie, there is either fighting or hardship in every Christmas movie. It's always a part. Uh, I think back to another tradition of my family. We always watch the movie Home Alone at Christmas time. Have you ever seen it? Well, if you've seen the first few moments of Home Alone, Kevin McAllister has called some very horrible names, like a disease. And none of his family, none of his brothers and sisters, especially his older brother, Chip? Buzz, thank you. Buzz does not like Kevin because Kevin messes with his stuff. And so there's this family discord that we're shown. And then all of a sudden, Kevin is sent up to the attic and he's there by himself. He's terrified. His family oversleeps. They go off on an airplane to France. Not a bad place for Christmas. And Kevin is left behind. He's home alone. And we see Kevin for the next hour and a half of the movie growing up and having to learn to take responsibility for his own actions. That's kind of the overarching theme of the movie. Then you get to the end. And I am not saying this movie is perfectly redemptive. But I am saying there's a wonderful picture for us here at Christmas. Because often when families come together, they go back to years of hurt and wounds that we've inflicted upon each other. 
Because at the end of the day, we are sinners and we do make mistakes. And at the end of the movie, Buzz comes up to Kevin and looks at him dead in the eye and said, Buzz, or Kevin, not bad. You didn't burn down the house. Which was the most loving thing an older brother would say to a younger brother. If you've had an older brother, you understand. Or if you are an older brother, you understand. In the same way and much, much greater, Jesus Christ completed the ministry of reconciliation for you and I. You see, we are the younger... Well, I don't want to mix metaphors here, but we are the children that just mess up everything. God made a way for us to be reconciled, for our relationship to be fixed, to be complete, to be whole again, for our family, our eternal family, to be brought back into harmony with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That ministry of reconciliation happened because Jesus Christ came down to earth as a man and made his dwelling among us and let us see his glory and let us see how he lived here on earth. And then he told us something. He told us, if you love me, you'll do what I say. And then later on in Hebrews, we're told that we should follow the example of Christ. Peter tells us, follow the example of the cross. Live as a servant. Jesus taught us, put others ahead of ourselves. Paul teaches, pursue a ministry of reconciliation because you have first been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But around the holidays, sometimes we can be overcome with either our desire to get the coolest and newest whatever it might be, or with the stress of having to entertain all of our families, or with the loneliness of wishing we could be with our family and we're not. And each of those, while completely understandable, takes our eyes off of the wonderful message that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. So what's our story? Well, it's my prayer that this Christmas season, our story is simple. That as we celebrate the holidays, we remember God became man and camped out with us and said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me who need a drink of living water, because it's me. My blood and my body, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see all of these statements that Jesus makes are relational? They're inviting us in to enjoying a relationship with God. This Christmas season, may our lives be full of grace and truth as Jesus Christ's life on earth was and continues to be. May we offer reconciliation to those relationships in our life that are hard. May we put the needs of others ahead of the needs of ourselves. which I commend our church that we were able to give $100,000 to helping those in the Philippines. May we not just do that when need arises, but may we always be on the lookout to give away the grace and truth of God that is ultimately Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, thank you very much for your word. Thank you.
that you gave us your son who is fully God and fully man who made his dwelling among us and allowed us to enter into eternal relationship with you by making us righteous through his sacrifice. In your name I pray.